Well, if you brought your copy of God's Word, open with me to the book of Matthew, chapter 9. A little, um, noticed and made an observation on my PowerPoint here that I failed to update my, my verses right here. So this was last week's verses. I got the part two updated, but I failed to put um, an update this. It's going to be 27, and we're going to get through 35 this morning. Uh, 36 through 38, we're going to pair together with the beginning of chapter 10 and make that um, uh, a unit of thought uh, transitioning there into chapter 10 next week. So this is going to be 27 through 35. If you're making notes, that's not a very that's not the most important note that I hope you make today. But nonetheless, that's a note you can make. But again, this morning we're going to finish uh, the section, a very compelling section of in Matthew's gospel, where he purposes to show us and those who would read his gospel how Jesus, as God's Son, purposefully validated his preaching and teaching ministry through the exercise of his healing ministry. We saw in chapters 5, 6, and 7 of Matthew's gospel a, an example of Jesus preaching the gospel of the kingdom. Um, we refer to that as the Sermon on the Mount, right? And in chapters 8 and 9, following that, we see Jesus then validating his preaching by use of signs, wonders, and miracles. And so Matthew is piecing his gospel together very purposefully uh, to show that Jesus is the unique one of God. He's the Messiah. And so he uses these two chapters, chapters 8 and 9, to show us, those willing to pay attention, uh, that Jesus is now authenticating who he is through the use of signs, wonders, and miracles that he is indeed the Messiah of God. And as such, um, these miracles ultimately then point to the power and glory of God. Have you noticed uh, in going through chapters 8 and 9 how there's never been an overemphasis at all on any occasion where the miracle itself somehow gets glorified or lifted off the pages of Scripture as being something uh, over which we need to give glory in? Jesus always, it almost seems like the miraculous portion of it is understated because I think the intention isn't to point to the miracle itself, but the, the miracle is the sign that points to the Messiah. We need to come out of this section with a clear understanding that these things are pointing to Jesus, King Jesus, the Messiah, and we need to make a consideration as to who we believe him to be. And I can't imagine... I mean, think about this. Could you imagine a single individual, especially a Jewish person, having seen the power of God in this man and having known of or perhaps heard of uh, the, the affirmation of this man's arrival of ministry through the forerunner, John the Baptist, who was out in the wilderness. We saw him back in chapter 3 and 4. I mean, I can't imagine how anyone could turn aside from Jesus and not believe him to be the long-awaited Messiah. Having just read a portion of what Matthew has recorded from in these chapters 8 and 9, if you were uh, privileged to participate and see some of this, and then you connect that with John the Baptist, and then you have a thought to give consideration regarding the Old Testament, I just find it hard to believe that um, everyone's not believing in this Jesus as their long-awaited Messiah. 
How about you? Well, the same's true today, isn't it? The, sa- the, the same truth is, the, applies even for those of us today, even though we didn't see with our own eyes. Because we do have firsthand accounts from eyewitnesses who were there. We're, we're um, reading of such accounts, firsthand accounts of people who were there who saw the risen Jesus. As, remember, it was Matthew in, in the third person even made mention of the fact that Jesus saved him, miraculously opened his spiritual blind eyes to see Matthew is a first-hand account and witness, and he's writing his gospel. And he is among many of those first-hand account witnesses whose lives were changed and who willingly died very violent deaths for what they know that they saw and in whom they had come to believe. So after reading their accounts of Jesus and all the things that he did during his three-year ministry, in essence, how could anyone not believe? In this man, right? It does seem rather miraculous that there are still people, hooves on the ground here in unbelief. But such is the problem of unbelief. It's a daunting, gnarly little thing that lets not a man go except by mercy and grace. You see, these miraculous signs establish and verify this fact of who Jesus is. We looked at this last week. I've added a few since we've continued through these chapters. Here's just the preview of what Matthew gives of what these individuals, this crowd that's been following Jesus. He cleansed the leopard. He healed the centurion's servant. Peter's mother-in-law was healed of her illness. He was on the boat. Winds and waves that were raging were calmed. He heals a paralytic man as a proof, as a sign of his authority to actually be the one who is the God-man who forgives sin. Um, He also uh, healed Matthew, as I mentioned, from his condition of unbelief. Uh, He healed the woman of a 12-year hemorrhage, and he touched Jairus' daughter, having been dead, and brought her back to life. Matthew just continues to add a litany of these these, um, ailments that the lordship of Jesus Christ prevails over, and it would seem, perhaps, that the high high point of this would be bringing this young lady here back to life from death. And in our passage today, Jesus, I mean, excuse me, Matthew is yet going to add more of what Jesus did in demonstrating his authority, his power to heal, and that he is indeed the Son of God come from heaven. Notice this. Look at verse 27 with me. And as Jesus went from there, two blind men followed him, crying out, Have mercy on us, Son of David. So again, we see Matthew linking Jesus' activity from one event to the next, from one healing to the next. Last week in verses 23 through 26, we saw that's where Jesus um, touched, took Jairus' daughter by the hand and brought her back to life from death. And it seems here from Matthew's gospel that no sooner than his leaving Jairus' house that there were these two blind men, it says, and Jesus went on from there, so as he's leaving that ministry portion of his day, two blind men followed him, crying out, have mercy on us, son of David. And assuming um, 
that these two blind men here, I'm making an assumption, but I, I think it's a, a founded assumption, that these two blind men were either part of the crowd that had followed Jesus uh, that brought them to Jairus' house, and perhaps they were part of that crowd, or perhaps, if you remember, there was another crowd when Jesus got to Jairus' house. There was already a crowd of mourners who had gathered and who were mourning the death of his daughter, the flute, uh, those playing flutes, and those who were, who were weeping and wailing. So I'm not certain exactly which one of these crowds they were in. I'm assuming that they were probably in the larger crowd that had followed Jesus to Jairus' house. And, um, and it seems that... Um, Having experienced from their perspective, now remember that they have a unique perspective, don't they? Uh, these are two blind men. I've oftentimes wondered what that must have been like, how two blind men are following Jesus around in the crowd. Now obviously when you're blind, I, I have never been blind, but I say obviously as if I know what I'm speaking about, but I've heard that your, that your other senses really get very in, intuitive and skilled, so you, can, you hear so much better, and your ability to follow noises, etc. So I don't know if these blind men had people kind of helping them follow this crowd. That seems a little bit difficult to, to fathom. I'm assuming that perhaps they're just listening, and they've got a walking stick perhaps, and they're following, they're just following the noise of this crowd, and they're, and they're hearing they're hearing about the things that Jesus is doing. They're not seeing. They're hearing, obviously, because they're blind. And, um, and it would seem that this incident with Jairus' daughter being raised back to life from the dead seems to have hit them in a different kind of way. Because notice it says, as Jesus went on from there, two blind men followed him, crying out. So there was something that happened there with Jairus' daughter, raising her back to life. They didn't see these things. They heard that this is what had happened. They heard that Jesus kind of said, she's not dead, she's just sleeping. And they were mocking and jeering and laughing. They heard these things, but then they also heard that this young girl came back to life. They um, made a decision about life, it seems. They made a very significant decision about life on this occasion, and it seems that having followed that situation, that um, these two blind men were convinced of something very important about Jesus. Notice what they're saying here. They're crying out, Have mercy on us, son of David. Now, before dealing with this confession of theirs, this have mercy on us and the, the use of this title that they have here, Son of David, and why that would be so significant and why that's indicative of something within these two blind men that must have been triggered within them, having heard of the things that just recently took place with Jairus' daughter. They had heard of the other things, but this one, for some reason, God used in a very special way, it seems, to have a transformation in their hearts where they're now making a confession with their lips that this man, whom they have not seen or anything he's done, that he is indeed the Messiah, the son of David. But before looking at that confession, notice again this verb here that, that, that's used here. They were what? They were crying out. Now, um, we don't know sometimes how to 
understand this idea of crying out. Occasionally we have little ones in here that cry out, right? I've heard a few this morning. I love children. Don't get me wrong, but we, we hear them, right? Um, notice this right here. Um, Cardzo from the Greek here for cry out. It's to shout or cry out with the possible implication of the unpleasant nature of the sound. I think I've heard a few of those around here on Sunday morning. Um, to shout, to scream. But these, these, this is coming from adults. This is coming from adults. It seems that Jesus, having raised this little girl back to life, really went not just to their heads, but to their hearts. And uh, they, they carazzo, they cry out. It seems to be a representation of a life cry from these blind men, of crying out of desperation and in and, and need of hope. And they're doing this with some great intensity. It's very unpleasant, probably, and there's a large crowd, and they're trying to get the attention of the healer. So I'm betting, how about you, that these guys are screaming at the top of their lungs, desperately trying to get Jesus' attention amongst an already large crowd that wants his attention. Can you just try to imagine that? Put yourselves there. You're, you're, you're standing next to these two blind men. Just, you just happen to be there, you know. These guys are, are shouting out probably as loud as they can um, after Jesus, as it says in the text, uh, have mercy on us, son of David. I think perhaps they would have been a part of the crowd whenever Jesus talked about how God desires mercy and compassion, not sacrifice. And they're saying, have mercy on us, son of David. And they, it seems in the text, by the way the text lays itself out, that this was something that they were doing repeatedly until they gained the attention of Christ and a hearing with him. Which, um, I'm not certain about this either, but I, I'm making an assumption, not on behalf of these two blind men, but just a general assumption that there was a, a fairly general understanding amongst the Jewish people of that day of the long-awaited coming Messiah. And so they're, they're using language that indicates that they have a general understanding. They're, say, they're, they're saying, have mercy on us, son of David. They're, they're using some language that's indicating that they have somewhat of an understanding or knowledge that this special one, this Messiah who's to come, is to be the son of David. So they're using some particular, in, in almost even some technical language that Matthew records here that almost lets us have an understanding, an insight that they were to a certain degree, I don't know how broadly of a degree, but to a certain degree, understanding and familiar with the Old Testament aspects of the coming of Messiah, that he would be the son of David. And it makes me think that perhaps these guys were also familiar with the prophet Isaiah, and in particular, what we call Isaiah's chapter 42, which describes the activity of Yahweh's chosen servant. And the reason... Um, such activity of Yahweh's chosen servant would be um, significant to these two blind men is because it says that Yahweh's chosen servant was going to be one who would open the eyes of the blind. And so I can only imagine that these guys were probably thinking to themselves, no better time than now. Right? I mean, can you, can you kind of walk with me and piece that together? They're shouting out, have mercy on us, son of David. 
you're the healer. We believe you to be in, in, uh, in connection with the son of David. You're, you're the promised one, the Messiah. And Isaiah said that you're going to be able to open the eyes of the blind. Here we are. Now, maybe some of that's a lot of conjecture on my part and pulling some verses together. And so perhaps if these blind men were unaware of this, what I am certain of is that Jesus was aware of this without question. And so I wanted to just kind of walk through Isaiah 42, 1 through 10 quickly, not walk through it as if I'm going to exposit this. I'm not. But I want you to think about this. What Jesus is doing as we're going through Matthew is a fulfillment of the things that, uh, that the servant of Yahweh was predicted to be doing. Okay? And so just notice this. I'm just going to, just like skipping a rock across water, listen to Isaiah 42, a couple of verses here. Behold my servant whom I uphold. So this servant would be Jesus, Yahweh speaking, my chosen one in whom my soul is well pleased. Seems like we heard that language when Jesus came up from his baptism. I have put my spirit up on him, the spirit descending. He will bring forth justice to the nations. We see that the preaching of the gospel was intended to be a preaching of the gospel, not just to Israel exclusively, though many of the Old Testament prophets would say things like to the nation of Israel or to Judah or something like that. We see here that this justice that was to bring forth was a justice to all the nations. God's son, his chosen servant, verse 2, he will not cry out or raise his voice, nor make his voice heard in the streets. A crushed reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not extinguish. He will bring forth justice in truth. Jesus isn't going to take people who are, who are hurting and who are um, wearied in their faith and say, well, look at you, you didn't persevere at that situation. He's going to lift them up. He's going to try to bring them back up and give them a sense of hope in him, the new wine that has now arrived Verse 4, he will not be faint or crushed until he has established justice in the earth. And the coastlands will wait expectantly for his law. Verse 5, thus says the Lord, thus says the God Yahweh, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and its offspring, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk in it. I am Yahweh. I have called you in righteousness. I will also take hold of you by the hand and guard you, and I will give you as a covenant to the people, as a light to the nations. Here Jesus is personified as the, as, as the covenant himself. He is the covenant giver. I will give you as a covenant. This is a reference to the new covenant, to people, as a light to the nations, Jews and Gentiles alike, to open blind eyes, to bring out prisoners from the dungeon. I think this might be where the, um, our two guys in our text this morning, if they were somewhat familiar with Isaiah, they were like, hey, hey, son of David, have mercy on us. We believe in you. And we know that you have the ability to open blind eyes. We heard, we heard that you just raised a dead girl. We heard about the leper. We heard, but we know that you can do for us too what we desperately need to open blind eyes, to bring out prisoners from the dungeon and those who inhabit darkness from the prison. I am Yahweh, that is my name. I will not give my glory to another, nor my praise to graven images. Behold, the former things have come to pass. Now I declare new things. 
Before they spring forth, I cause you to hear them. Remember the old wine skins, new wine, that portion we just looked at in Matthew. And then notice in verse 10, and in verse 10 and following in Isaiah 42, it's all about this. It's all about singing praises to Yahweh for what he is going to accomplish in his chosen servant. Sing to Yahweh a new song. Sing his praise from the end of the earth. Isn't that beautiful? Just the way Isaiah lays out the ministry and the work that Jesus is going to accomplish in a general sense. And again, it seems to me, uh, I'm not certain, but if these two blind men had this passage, this portion of this passage in mind or not, again, I think that Jesus did. And in chapter 11 of Matthew's gospel with John the Baptist in prison, we see that John the Baptist sent some of his disciples uh, to Jesus to ask him if he was the one. Remember that portion? Or are, are you the one, or the Messiah, or is there someone else that we should be looking for? John's in prison. He's not perhaps seeing Jesus becoming the conquering servant that they were presuming that he would be in his first and only coming. And Jesus, his reply lets us know that he understood the significance of what was to happen here with these two blind men. And we're going to see this in just another chapter when we get to Matthew chapter 11. Jesus answered and said to them, these are the disciples that John the Baptist sent, go and report to John what you hear and see. Verse 5, the blind receive sight, and the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear. The dead, Jairus' daughter, are raised up, and the poor have the gospel preached to them. And blessed is he who does not take offense at me. So when we see these two blind men come to Jesus, oh, wow, I'm going to have to go back too far, come to Jesus, and they say to him, have mercy on us, son of David. I think that what Matthew is in essence showing us and what the Spirit of God and the inspiration of the text is showing us is that God has already done a saving work in their hearts. The confession of their lips is that Jesus is the promised long-awaited Messiah. He is the son of David. Now, we could get more into technical talk and language on that issue, but I think just the, the basis of what Matthew's wanting to do with these two blind men who could not see any of the things that Jesus has accomplished with their sight. These men are genuinely living by faith. And notice in verse 28 where he picks up in his conversation with them and notice the particular question that he asks. He's, and it says, and when he entered the house, and when he, Jesus, entered the house, the blind men came up to him and Jesus said to them, so here Jesus says to these two blind men, there in verse 28, do you believe that I am able to do this? Do what? Their cry, their crying out was what? Have mercy on us, son of David. Did they particularly say, we're blind and we need to see? So that brings a, a, an interesting question, uh, point to this question. Do you believe that I am able to do this? Clearly, in the context, it's dealing with the, the giving of sight, but it seems like there's, there's an allusion to some other 
truths that are happening in these men as well. Do you believe that I am able to do this? They said to him, yes, Lord. Now, uh, we're not told here, but it seems that Jesus followed these two blind guys. Um, He didn't follow them, but he allowed these two blind guys to cry out. Now, think about this. For, and we don't know, but for some period of time, these two blind guys, they leave Jairus' house, and it says that Jesus, he left, and he went into another house. And many assume that perhaps this house that Jesus went into was perhaps either Peter's house, a place that he stayed while he was there in Capernaum, or perhaps a home that he had himself. We don't know. But we do know that it was a, play, it was a house that Jesus went into, and it seems that he was going in there to have a little bit of a respite from the day of ministry. But, as I've mentioned to you, when you are the miracle man, is there ever rest from ministry? The answer is no. And we see this. They're following him everywhere he goes. These two blind men now are entering into this house, and so Jesus is saying to them, he's heard them. And the the point that I'm wanting to make here is the persistence that that these two blind men must have been demonstrating from the time they left Jairus' house to the time they get to this house that Jesus is in when they have an entrance and gain an entrance before him. It says that they were crying out. It doesn't say how long, but I have a good hunch that they didn't just say it once. How about you? Do you think they just said it once? Have mercy on us, son of David. That's all I got in me. No, I have a feeling that Jesus allowed these two guys, for however far the distance was from the place where Jairus' daughter was healed to to the house that he went into, that these guys came to, it would seem to me that these two men were crying out to Jesus that entire time, have mercy on us, son of David. In other words, Jesus allowed them to persist in their profession of faith long enough that everybody in that crowd listening would have had a clear indication and indication that these two guys believed Jesus to be the coming Messiah. And it seems that this is the first time that Matthew, or in any of these occasions, where this kind of, of uh, situation and circumstance took place. Do you believe that I'm able to do this? Well, they've been crying out now for some time, and they respond to him, yes, and notice, Lord. These two blind guys immediately have an understanding. They're not healed yet. They haven't received their sight yet. Something has changed within their hearts to where they've now professed with their mouths that there's something unique about this man. He's the son of David. He's the one that was promised from our Old Testament. And they're already, they already have lordship on their lips. You know, it really, it's, it, it's really a um, unique thing in the American church where we seem to want to tack lordship on as an appendage. Like, well, that's something you can come to later as, you've, as you grow in your faith. How much time did these two blind men have to grow in their faith? Immediately. And then this is what's unique about repentance and the recognition of who Jesus is. We're not just adapt, put, putting Jesus in our pocket like he's a rabbit's foot and he's our good friend. There's a recognition of when you come to faith in Jesus that he is God. Amen. He's the God from heaven who when he spoke, galaxies leapt into existence. There's not a lot of need to just kind of casually and slowly come to a casual understanding that Jesus is supposed to be Lord. No, immediately these two blind guys are recognizing the lordship of Jesus Christ over their lives. Do you believe I'm able to do this? They said, yes, Lord. And without hesitation, verse 29, notice, he touched them. 
he touched their eyes, saying, It shall be done to you according to your faith. And their eyes, verse 30, were opened. And again, of all the miracles, signs and wonders that Jesus has recorded thus far, this is the first one and only one in Matthew's gospel where the faith of the person being healed is questioned and perhaps required as a condition of their healing. Which is oftentimes misunderstood and then used wrongly by people today who traffic in signs, wonders, and miracles. They wrongly claim for anyone who prayed for a healing or over whom they prayed for a healing who does not get healed, all they have to claim is that they didn't have enough faith. And they like to go to a passage, this passage in Matthew, where clearly their faith was what enabled the, 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 the loosing, the freeing of Jesus to bring sight back to their blind eyes. If you just had more faith, and this is where a wrong understanding and application and teaching from this example with these two blind people has disastrous consequences and is spiritually harmful for so many people today. I don't have time now to share the story of my cousin Andy who went to Rama Bible College right across the way here in Broken Arrow, but let me tell you, this very thing right here utterly destroyed him. He went from a man who loved Jesus and who loved God. He went, he went through their healing class over there, and he passed. They offer a class on healing. He took it. He passed. Presumably, they never actually healed anybody in that class. But he went out from that class. I remember we were young. He, he, we, he told me, he said, man, I'm going to, his hair was so on fire. He loved Jesus genuinely so much. He wanted to go out and help people with the gift and the, the, uh, of miracles. And he told me at one point, every single person I've ever prayed for has never gotten healed. And he kept saying, There's, it, it, it must be something with me or with them. I, just, I don't have enough faith or they don't have enough faith. So he would, he would kind of um, spiritually wound himself with thoughts that if I only had more faith, how can I get more faith? Lord, I believe. It's like, it's like the old proverbial when people tell you just to pray harder. Like, what, what does that actually mean? Do you grit your fist when you pray and that makes it harder? Or it's, it's like, it's, it's a really difficult thing. If you would have just prayed harder for something, maybe God would have then moved. You could have really moved God to action if you just had more faith. Clearly, you didn't get healed because you didn't have faith. And my cousin Andy told me of several people that he actually tried, he prayed for, he prayed for the healing and they died. And eventually, that theology imploded on him. He left the church, became an alcoholic for over 20 years, destroyed his liver, and he's in uh, Canada now, living there full-time. And uh, he's in and out of the hospital with major medical issues because of alcoholism abuse. And this kid loved Jesus way more than I did when I was, I, well, I wasn't a believer. This guy was legit. He really loved the Lord just need to have more faith. And this passage kind of gets used in that way. But do you remember, um, don't remember verse 31 yet. I didn't put this in here. But do you remember when we were making our way through this chapter? It was the first screen that I showed you. Remember the leper, the centurion's servant, Peter's mother-in-law, the paralytic, the woman who suffered 12 years with the hemorrhage, Jairus' daughter. 
Remember those? Not once was their healing predicated because they said, yes, I have faith. It wasn't somehow predicated on the faith. Not once. None of their healing was predicated on their having enough faith to be healed. Instead, they were healed because Jesus is merciful and sought to validate his messianic claims through signs, wonders, and miracles, and he showed mercy to the likes of these in order to accomplish a greater goal. The, the miracle is never intended to be the, the focus. The Savior is. These two blind men were asked the leading question, do you believe I'm able to do this for the simple reason that their blindness has thus far prevented them from seeing and thus knowing beyond a need for faith that Jesus was able to do this for them. And hence Jesus' simple question. And their answer was all Jesus needed as their answer affirmed that their great heart cry had already confessed that they believed Jesus to be David's son, whom they recognize now as their Lord. Isn't that beautiful? See how important passages of scripture can be and why exegesis and not eisegesis is desperately needed in the teaching of God's word. If you just dive in, grab a verse, pull it out, put it on your little placard right here, and then build your theology around this one thing, you can go out and say almost anything you want. You just need more faith. If you just had more faith, you would see the miracles flow. Not true. Do we need to be people of faith? I'm not saying we don't need to be people of faith, am I? I'm not saying that we don't need to be people of faith. We need to be people of faith. But do you, do you remember uh, Daniel's buddies? God may rescue us from the, from the fiery furnace. He may not rescue us from the fiery Did they lack faith? Why do I keep popping? I keep popping or something. Popping, I don't like that popping noise. They weren't lacking faith. But they weren't focused on the miracle. They were focused on the God of the miracle. And they were saying that God could do as he pleased. Oh, and see also Job. It's really more about the heart than it is the miracle. The miracle is the sign that points to the Messiah. The miracle isn't to be something that we get focused on and then fall in love with and then go out and try to peddle. And then Jesus sternly warned these guys, notice in verse 31, they went out and spread the news about him after sternly warning him. Where was that? Oh, right there. And their eyes were opened. But they went out. I'm missing something, but they went out and spread the news about him through all that land. Where's my verse? So I must have messed up on my PowerPoint. See, I know more than my PowerPoint knows right here. At the very end, I, okay, I cut off 30. That's what I did. Right there. This is why I'm not making sense all of a sudden. And their eyes were opened. And Jesus sternly warned them, saying, See that no one knows about this. Now, don't you find that interesting? See that nobody knows about what? That Jesus was a miracle maker? That Jesus has been doing miracles? Hey, don't go out and tell people that, that I've done a miracle. That doesn't seem to make sense as to go out and see that no one knows about this. 
Um, Everybody knew that Jesus was the miracle maker. So what was it that Jesus was wanting them to be cautious about? And this is where it seems that their confession of Jesus being the son of David may have more in play here with what's happening when he says, see that no one knows about this. Perhaps it has something to do with their confession, not that he's the healer. It seems this language that Jesus is speaking to them seems to kind of embody a larger theme that we see throughout the Gospels where Jesus paints this idea of of not telling people about things that he has done for a particular reason. And sometimes he uses the language like that his hour has not yet come. Uh, That his rejection by the Jewish nation was still being delayed almost, if you will, for just a little bit longer. That the spreading of the news that Jesus was the Messiah to come in the flesh might somehow hasten that day. There are on a few occasions he he even had to pass through their midst to get away from being thrown off a cliff. As of yet, Jesus hadn't sought to make that part of his identity a part of his own public preaching just yet, it might seem. And so Jesus is saying to them, don't go out and spread the news of your confession that the son of David is the one who came in fulfillment of Isaiah 42 and brought sight to the blind. I don't know. That's a very difficult passage to get your head wrapped around. But what we do know that as of yet, for the most part, most of the people didn't view Jesus' miracles as signs of his being the Messiah. Most of them simply viewed him as being a miracle worker who's offering a, a free meals and for a relief from human suffering was a good gig, and, and so they followed after him in order to get those things. But as we see, this stern warning from Jesus not to speak was simply too great for them to handle And so verse 31, they went out and they spread the news about him throughout all that land. And this is an interesting dilemma of sorts. They called him Lord. Their Lord said, hey, don't go do this. And yet it seems that they went out and spread the news about him throughout all the land. And spreading the news that Jesus was a miracle maker wasn't something that was news. That that news had already gotten out. It seems perhaps that what they're spreading news throughout the land is, is that Jesus is indeed the son of David, he's the Messiah, their profession of faith of who Jesus truly is. And they, like all people who have their spiritually blind eyes open, find it hard not to talk about such truth. I'm going to leave that one there. I don't want to affirm their disobedience, but I also don't want to um, condemn their heart's cry of understanding who Jesus truly was. Now in verse 32... Jesus has a second encounter. As they were going out, behold, a mute demon-possessed man was brought to him, and after the demon was cast out, the mute man spoke, and the crowds marveled, saying, nothing like this has ever been seen in Israel. And that phrase right there is the phrase that I took my title of the last two sermons, never seen before. Nothing like this has ever been seen in Israel. As the former blind men were leaving Uh, Jesus's house again the connection that Matthew just continues to make someone brought to Jesus a demon-possessed man who was mute and his demon possession prevented him from speaking we see here that Jesus cast the demon out of this man the man then speaks having been released from the demon and then the crowds marvel at Jesus's continuation of showing forth supernatural power and they say 
this. They say nothing like this has ever been seen in Israel. And that seems to be kind of like a placeholder for the broader scope of what Jesus has been doing. From the healing of, the, of Jairus' daughter, the two blind men seeing, the, uh, another example of demons being cast out, this mute man who's now speaking. They, it's almost like this crowd is saying, we've never seen anything like this in Israel at all. And these were the people who were the recipients of the oracles that talked about Moses and Joshua and all the miraculous and mighty things they did, of Elijah and Elisha and all the miraculous and mighty things that they did. And they're saying the current consensus among this crowd, at least, is that Jesus was surpassing them all. And when we see in verse 34, that mixed in among the crowd there, among these individuals, we see kind of sneakily kind of in there. um, In verse 34, notice who we find we find that there were some uh, agents kind of mixed in amongst the crowd in order to gather information, in order to... Nothing new under the sun, folks, right? I mean, this is just the way life works. But the Pharisees were saying... So there were some Pharisees mingled in amongst the crowd. They're seeing and hearing all this stuff. They probably heard the two blind guys and what they were saying, and they saw them get healed. Then this demon gets removed. He speaks... Nothing like this. The Pharisees are saying, hey, listen, folks, nothing to see here. Calm it down. Tap your enthusiasm for this man down. He cast out demons by the ruler of the demons. And as illogical as that, as that statement makes, they're hoping that people will actually believe it. I mean, every time we've ever seen an occasion where, with people being demon-possessed, does it look like it was for their good or for their ill? And every time Jesus released somebody from demonic oppression, was it for their good or for their ill? It's like opposite worlds, right? Demons overtake people, and it, and it throws them into fires. They foam at the mouth. It makes them mute. They can't hear what. It's for the negative. It, it's, it's negativity all over. When Jesus re- releases and heals somebody from demon possession, it's always a beautiful thing. They're made whole. They're in their right minds. They can speak. They can hear. (laughs) Nothing to see here, folks. He's just doing this by the ruler of the demons. And then Jesus, in another gospel, he says, well, it's, it's a world in collision against each other. A kingdom divided can't stand. In other words, this is one of the most illogical statements that they could make, and this shows, if you will, just how desperate these religious leaders in Jesus' day truly have become. MacArthur summarized this well. He said, from that statement, it's clear that many of the Pharisees not only were suspicious and envious of Jesus, but already had determined him to be an absolute enemy of traditional Judaism. Hey, don't go out and spread the news about this just yet. I'm trying to tap that part down because those guys are going to kill me. I need, I need at least another couple years of ministry, and then that's going to happen, and then I'm going to rise from the dead, and it's going to happen just like I told you it would happen of which they were the chief custodians, and in the minds, and in their minds, the enemy of their religion was the enemy of God. And as such, the Pharisees' first and only conclusion is that Jesus does his miracles, and in this case, he casts them out by the ruler of demons. He's an agent of the demonic forces. In other words, Jesus got his power and authority to do what he's doing from the power of demons. Don't let this man confuse you. I guess seeing isn't always believing, is it? These Pharisees, they were seeing. 
They saw all the things that Jesus did. They saw the raising of the dead. They saw all these things. Seeing isn't always believing. But what is always needed is God's mercy and grace. And then in wrapping up this morning, in summary fashion, notice verse 35, Jesus was going through all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and preaching the gospel of the kingdom and healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. And notice, just note, I, just, I put a little quote in here from Josephus, the Jewish historian, who said that around this time in, in Galilee, there were around 200 cities and villages in that region uh, and that region is known to have spanned about 40 miles by 70 miles. Josephus wrote this word, these words. He said, The cities are numerous, and the multitude of villages everywhere crowded with men owing to the fertility of the soil, so that the smallest of them contains about above 15,000 inhabitants. And so if we just do some simple math based off of Josephus' numbers, it's fair to say that this large region contained perhaps some 3 million people, all of whom would have been and had a potential to have come in direct or uh, partial contact with Jesus, his teaching ministry, his preaching ministry, and his healing ministry. In other words, what Matthew is recorded for us in chapters 8 and 9 would seem to only be a small representation, a small fraction of the much wider-ranging ministry that Jesus had in and around Galilee. Can you imagine that? Contact upwards of 15 million people and doing this on a daily basis for a multitude of years. Teaching in the synagogues every week, preaching the gospel of the kingdom, and healing. What's it saying? Every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. This is what our God does. And what I really like about the blind guys in a similar way, they're kind of like us. They were believing without seeing. Have, have, have any of, we, we're reading, we're seeing in words we haven't seen with eyes. So, do you believe? Do you believe the miracle worker from Galilee is the son of David come to accomplish the redeeming work of God? Well, this just sets us up for a transition piece because if you believe these things, and this morning we don't have the time, if you believe these things, Jesus is going to have his disciples pray for something. And what he's going to have his disciples pray for, we're going to finish that next week and then go into chapter 10. That's where there's direct application for his disciples because they were believing. They were believing these things too. They had eyes to see and they had eyes of faith to see what Jesus did. We don't. But the application of these things, Jesus is going to send his disciples out and say, now that I've shown you how to do these things, you go do these things. And we've got to make a distinction between what Jesus told them to do, those original 12, and us. Because again, sometimes we can wrongly think that the very things that he told them to go out and do, we're supposed to do as well. You need to come back and hear this one because it has a little bit more to do with a misunderstanding of the purpose of the sign gift of healing and its application. I mean, we're seeing, we're seeing Jesus using healing and these uh, apostles of his and disciples and some others will use healing in a very particular way. We need to have more conversation on that. Come next week, we'll dive more into that. But let me just say this. Listen, if you're here this morning and you've never placed your faith and hope in this man, Jesus, the God-man, the son of David, 
Matthew has laid out before you a presentation for two whole chapters that he demonstrated that he had the power of God. He didn't get his power from the power of demons. He got his power because he's God and he was filled with the Holy Spirit as Isaiah foretold us was going to happen in chapter 42. And it came to pass just like predictive prophecy said it would. If you've never put your faith in Jesus Christ, do so today. And what that means is you make him Lord. Listen, believer, there's some, there's some here today who, who are believers. Oh, I, I believe. I've been baptized. Is he your Lord? Have you made Jesus Lord of your life? Is he Lord over everything? Have you made him master over everything in your life? To where you're a steward of everything, he's the owner of everything, and you owe everything to him. If you're here this morning and you haven't done that, let me encourage you to do that. Don't leave this morning without being like these two blind guys and recognizing Jesus as the Son of Man who is your personal Lord and Savior. He's your Lord. Amen? Amen. It, changes, it changes everything. It changes the way we face the world. It changes everything, and it gives us a strength. It gives us a hope. It gives us a perseverance. It gives us a perseverance in our faith, knowing that he's our Lord. Let's live this way.